Yes, Lord. Good morning. morning. He is risen. Uh, Scott said, it's so good to be here together. It's so good to have people in the room, people online, excited to worship outside. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and it's just a joy to be here on Easter. Hey, I thought I'd start with a joke this morning, because it's Easter, right? So a guy walks into the doctor, and he says, I've got a serious complaint. Doc, I'm dead. I'm a corpse. The doctor thinks and tries to figure out how he might handle this situation and comes up with an idea. He says, well, are corpses ticklish? And the guy kind of chuckles and says, of course not. No, corpses aren't ticklish. So the doctor tickles him. And the guy laughs and squirms away. The doctor says, see, with kind of a satisfied feel. And the guy is, is apologetic. He says, you're right, doc. Corpses are ticklish. Now, that didn't go over quite as well as I thought, but yeah. We'll get there later. This joke is from a book that I have been reading called The Most Human Human. It's a book that tells the story of what's called the Loebner Prize. Now, this is a yearly competition where computer scientists gather to demonstrate an artificial intelligence that can convince people that it is, in fact, human. It it, it follows what people call the Turing test. And if you're familiar with this, it's five minutes of chat-based conversation that people have with a computer. And if the computer can convince that person that it's human, then it has passed the Turing test. So every year, one of the computer scientists that submitted an artificial intelligence wins the Loebner Prize and is crowned the most human AI that year. But stacked up against each AI is also a person who has to go against the AI and convince the same judge that he or she is, in fact, the real human. And so in addition to the one prize, the most human AI, they also award a prize to the human who's able to convince the most judges that they are, in fact, human. And that person is awarded the prize, the most human human. So this author, his name is Brian Christian, he, he volunteered to be one of those humans, and, and he reflects in this book on what it means, given five minutes of conversation, to convince someone else that you are, in fact, a human. Think about that. What would you do, what would you say in five minutes to demonstrate your humanity? Now, I think that this issue raises one of the most important questions of our culture. Whether it's research on artificial intelligence, or gene editing, or or life extension technology, or just being sequestered for a year without a lot of social contact, the issue of what it means to be human is all over our culture. And I think that today, on Easter Sunday, Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, gives us an answer, gives us a vision of what it means to be human that is far greater than anything most people can even imagine. See, on this day, we celebrate Jesus coming back to life. We celebrate the resurrection. 
And in that picture, I, I think that Jesus shows us that he is in fact, and that he has a vision for what it looks like to be the most human human. In the past year, a lot of us have uh, forgotten what it feels like to be human. You know, we've been sitting at home. We've been not having as much social contact as we would like. We've been restricted from visits, from travel. And I know a lot of people have struggled deeply with what it really is like, what it feels like to, to be stuck. And in some ways, we've even forgot what it means to be human. But this morning, Jesus gives us a picture of that. And as we uh, walk through our Easter message, what we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus travels. See, the Easter story doesn't just start on Easter Sunday morning. It begins Friday night. It begins with the death of Jesus on a hill. And what we're going to see is that Jesus begins on a hill, he goes into a garden, and then he goes back to a hill. And it's in that journey, it's in that path that we see Jesus painting for us a picture of a new kind of humanity. Now I'm going to hope that my notes actually work here. Probably can't tell that I'm a little worried because my notes are not coming up. Here we go. All right. They have been resurrected. We're going to work here. Well, I want to travel back before we get into the resurrection to Friday night. I want us to see something in particular about what happened when Jesus died that gives us a new perspective about what it means that he was raised. So go back with me for a minute. We're going to read John 19, verses 16 through 20. This is what we hear. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So we're told in this passage that Jesus was crucified on a hill called Golgotha. Now most people, there's a couple of different places where, where people think that hill might have been in Jerusalem. But everybody agrees that it was on some type of raised place. And the purpose was because the Romans wanted everyone to watch their criminals die. See, the Romans used crucifixion in a particular way. They used crucifixion not just to execute people, but to humiliate them, to put them on public display. The, uh, the sign above Jesus that, that Pilate wrote, Jesus, King of the Jews. Sometimes we think that was written to honor Jesus because Pilate was kind of secretly a Jesus fan, but that's probably not the case. What Pilate was doing was humiliating Jesus and discrediting the Jews, saying to that community in Jerusalem, here's your king hanging on a cross. What kind of king is that? 
One of our missionaries, Nolan Sharp, works in a uh, context that is very influenced by principles of honor and shame. So listen to what he wrote about what the cross means. Public mocking, nudity, and, and, and dying were all deeply shameful. Delirium and agony caused the victim to cry or beg. Over the many hours it took to die, he was covered with his own urine and feces. His broken body was usually left on display and denied an honorable burial. The victim not only died, but also was thoroughly humiliated. In the ancient Mediterranean, this particular kind of dishonorable death meant simply and unavoidably permanent disgrace. The Roman consul Cicero referred to the cross as the tree of shame. See, Jesus wasn't just killed. In modern terms, he was canceled. He was completely disgraced, put to shame. Nobody, after seeing their leader hung on a cross, could possibly follow that movement ever again. You know, I wear a cross around my neck on a chain, but early Christians didn't do that. Early Christians didn't use the cross in their art or their jewelry because the cross was so shameful. It took 400 years before the cross showed up in Christian art. Because even after the resurrection, those early Christians just had such a connection of shame with that method of dying. Perhaps this was Jesus at his most human. Perhaps Jesus bleeding, dying, crying out, in sorrow and pain, filled with shame. Perhaps this is when Jesus seems to be most fully human. And I think a lot of us think that way. You know, what do we say when someone makes a mistake? We say, well, you know, he's only human. It's as if humanity at its very core we think to be weakness. And so when we see a guy on a cross, we think that's that I can relate to. I can relate to that pain. I can relate to that shame. I can understand that kind of suffering. But I want to suggest to us that perhaps our vision of humanity is too small. That perhaps when Jesus died wasn't his most human moment. We need to continue on in the story to find out what I mean by that. During his life, Jesus said a lot of things that were really hard to understand. And at one point, he uses a metaphor that, that people would be familiar with, but then he applies it in a unique way. Listen to what he says in John 12, verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I've always been amazed at just how elegantly God created life to work. You, know, you take a peach pit, this hard, crusty thing that, that just seems like trash to us, but you put it in the ground and something magical happens. 
the life inside of that pit bursts forth, literally breaking the shell that contains it. And from that seed springs forth not another peach, but a tree that brings forth dozens, hundreds of more peaches. Now, this we accept. We know how this works. We, there's nothing unique about this. But then Jesus says this same principle applies to us. Listen to what he says in the next verse. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, Jesus seems to say that in some ways, our lives here on earth are like that seed. And if we hate it, if we are willing to let that seed die, then something springs forth from it. Shortly after this, of course, Jesus was executed and put to public shame. And then his corpse was taken down from the tree and buried in a garden. Now we know that corpses aren't ticklish, right? We also know that when you bury a corpse, you don't expect anything to come from it. We know that corpses aren't like seeds, that no new life comes when you bury a dead body in the ground. And yet, on that day, on this day, on Easter day, Jesus sprang forth, literally breaking free from the bonds that held him, and new life came out of that death. And so, these women went to the tomb and they, and they were looking for a seed. They were looking for a corpse. But instead of that, they found two men, two shining angels in the tomb who said this to them. This is what they said in Luke 24, starting in verse 5. They said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They say, well, why are you looking for a seed when you should be looking for a tree? Why are you looking for life in a place of death? Jesus is not here. He has risen. And in place of that death, where that seed was buried, there is now the possibility for eternal life. Eternal life is available to all who would believe in that seed. Now, some people think that eternal life simply means that when you die, you get to go to heaven. And that is not untrue. But it's not the full story. See, eternal life is not just a length of life. It's a quality of life. It's a kind of life. Eternal life is something that characterizes what it looks like to live. It begins here and now. It begins with that resurrected experience. 
And yes, it continues forever, but it's not something that simply starts after death. It begins by dying in a garden. It was about five years into our marriage and about three children into our marriage where things really got difficult. We, uh, my wife and I seemed like we were fighting all the time. We, you know, between lack of sleep and lack of compassion and our own just kind of trying to make life work, marriage was, was really breaking down. It was a challenging time and, and we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to go next. So eventually we realized through the counsel of some people that we needed to go to counseling. We needed somebody to help us through the situation we were facing. Now, the problem was that I was in seminary at the time. I was training to be a pastor. I was training to help people follow Jesus, to, to make their lives work, to, to be faithful. And here I was, I couldn't even do it in my own life. How could I need to go to counseling? It felt like death, literally. It felt like I was a complete failure if I didn't know how to make my marriage work. And so we went to counseling. And indeed, it felt like death. It felt like giving up of my pride and my confidence, my sense that I knew how to do this thing called living. And yet out of that, out of that weekly rhythm, out of that time of becoming vulnerable, of being willing to die to myself, God brought new life. God healed our marriage. He gave us a new sense of intimacy. He gave us trust. He gave us new skills. He gave us love for him in a new way. But it had to start with death. It had to start with being willing to die in a garden. See, Easter Sunday can't happen without Good Friday. There is no resurrection without the crucifixion. Unless there is death, there is no new life. So what about us? The, the biblical word for that kind of death, for, for being willing to die to yourself, is repentance. It's being willing to turn away from that mode of life where we are at the center, where, where we can do it all. Being willing to depend on God and, and admitting our own sin, our own shame, our own weakness. So what about you? Are you willing to die to yourself? Are you willing to turn from a, a kind of living that doesn't work? Are you willing to repent? Repent. It might feel like death. It might feel like Everything in you wants to avoid that, that all of your life you've been trying to hold it together and now to admit that you can't, that you need help, feels like failure. It feels like walking into shame and humiliation. And yet from that place, God can do something powerful. Because when a seed is buried in a garden, the life inside, God comes. He pours his life inside of us 
and it literally breaks open the hard edges that contain death. And so having repented, we put our faith in Jesus who was resurrected on this day and we believe. We believe in something bigger. We believe in life. We believe that Jesus made a way for us. We believe that the resurrection is for us, that it gives us purpose and freedom. Believe. And having done that, then we see one more thing. We see that when we believe, not only are our lives transformed, but but God starts to do something in our hearts and lives. He starts to, to, to change us. He starts to turn us outward. Now, if that's something you haven't experienced, any of you in the room or, or watching online, if you haven't repented of your old self and believed in Jesus Christ for new life, then we would love for you to do that today. We would love for you to follow Jesus, to experience the resurrection that Jesus offers us on Easter Sunday. And if you do that and you'd like to get baptized, we will happily dunk you at 11 a.m. during the outdoor service. Or if you've believed that in the past and you haven't yet been baptized, but you sense God leading you to that, come talk to one of us after the service. If you're watching online, drive over here. You can get here by 11. We can get you baptized. Talk to one of us when you arrive. Baptism is the symbol, the the death and resurrection that that we go through. It's symbolic of what it looks like to repent and believe. But as I said, when that happens, there's one more thing that comes of it. We first saw Jesus on the hill of shame. His broken body, bleeding, leaking fluids, humiliated and disgraced. And then we saw him go from that hill of shame into a garden, his body buried, but then resurrected. Before Jesus leaves, before he leaves earth, he goes to one more hill, and that's where we want to follow him. Jesus climbs up to this hill, and he talks to his disciples up there. He gives them a mission. He gives them a charge. Listen to what he says in Acts 1 verses 8 and 9. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus was standing at this moment on a hill called the Mount of Olives. Some of you have been to Israel. I've been to Israel with some of you, and I've stood on that hill, and we've seen Jerusalem right across the Kidron Valley. And I imagine Jesus standing on that hill with his disciples pointing. I imagine him saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And I imagine them looking out at these places that mean so much to them, knowing that Jesus was calling them to share the good news that they had experienced, this new life, with those places 
that were close to their heart. There's a hill near my house, right over by Shoreline Amphitheater. If you saw the Easter invitation video last week on the live stream, then you saw me standing on that hill. I, I run up to that hill a couple times a week. It's one of my standard workouts. And from that hill, I can see Google. I can see their, their new headquarters being built. I can see Hoover Tower off in the distance. I can see Facebook far in the distance. I, I can see all of Mountain View and Palo Alto kind of spreading out before me. And often when I get up to that hill, I, I stop because I'm tired by that point. <laughs> and I look around and I think about this area. I think about this place that Jesus has called us, has put us, has put me. And I think about what kind of a place this is, what kind of a unique part of the world this is at this time in history. And sometimes I imagine Jesus saying, you are my witness in Mountain View, in Palo Alto, in Sunnyvale, in the Silicon Valley, and to the end of the earth through our live stream. I imagine Jesus saying, this area that, that you have lived, that, that means so much to you, this is your place that I am sending you because this place needs the good news of the gospel. The vision for humanity in this place is not enough. People don't know what it means to be fully human. They need to hear the gospel and to see the life that Jesus offers. See, I don't think that Jesus in his shame and suffering was at his most human. Because those things were never meant to be a part of what God created when he created us. He didn't create us to die. Death is an intruder. Death is a deviation from the plan. Death is a bug in the code. God created us to live. And so even though we can relate to that picture of a man on a cross in pain, dying and crying out, when Jesus rose, when he came back to life, that was the moment that I think Jesus showed us what it means to be the most human human. Because in that place, what we celebrate today on Easter, that was when Jesus restored what God intended for humanity. This is what we were meant to be. This is how we were meant to live. And Jesus shows us that. He shows us that we were meant to be resurrected. We were meant to be free. And then he says, you got to tell others. You got to tell your city. You got to tell the people you know. You got to help them, give them a bigger vision of what it means to be human. This is the message of Easter. This is the mission that Jesus gives his followers. He tells us to repent, to believe, and then to be fruitful, to share that with the world. He tells us to be his witnesses, to share the news of the new life available in him to those people that we care about. And in fact, if, if you remember back to that 
beginning of Genesis, you might remember that one of the first things God told his people was to be fruitful. That this is, in fact, what God intended for humanity. And because of what happens today, because of Easter, because of the resurrection, we can experience that. Jesus' path goes from a hill into a tomb in a garden and back up to a hill where he gives us the command to be fruitful. It has to start with death. It, it has to start with being willing to face some of the hard things in our lives, some of the failures, the sin. Being willing to face the shame, the humiliation of the cross, to bear our own cross, and to repent. But having done that then, to die to that and believe in Jesus. See, Jesus didn't come so that we could become Christians. Jesus wasn't resurrected so that we could be good Christians, so that we could attain to some religious ideal or some mold of being particularly spiritual people. It's not about being a good Christian. It's about becoming human. Jesus came to restore our humanity, to make us fully into the people that we were always meant to be from the creation of the world. That's what it looks like to believe in Jesus. And then having believed, to share that, to be fruitful, to be his witnesses in Palo Alto and Mountain View and Sunnyvale and Los Altos and San Jose and Santa Clara, the, the Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, wherever you are, to proclaim the news that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is in fact the most human human, and that when we follow him, we have the chance to experience that as well. Repent, believe, and be fruitful. He is risen. He is risen Let's go and be fruitful.